You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Blessing for us to continue to share in God's Word this morning, isn't it? It's something, it's a privilege that uh, we don't take for granted, but that we thank the Lord for every time that we gather in church to have the scriptures and to have them together. Um, my prayer today is that, is that we learn, whether it's for the very first time or more deeply, that we learn how our entire lives are made complete in Jesus. We are complete in Jesus. This is our theme while we progress through the New Testament letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. And in recent weeks, we've been reading through the very glorious but very practical chapter 3. And as you'll see in a moment, this morning's passage starts with the word and. And I want us to remember that as we go through, that word and, because it obviously links us back to last Sunday where Pastor Brad was sharing and to the Sundays before that. It seems that since the new year, God has been teaching us so much about how it looks for us to be complete in Christ, what it actually looks like when our lives are complete in Christ. We're learning about how we are a transformed people that through the Spirit of Jesus in us, how we live. So if you have a Bible and you want to open it, I would encourage you to do that. You can keep it open uh, because I'll be referring back to this passage as I teach this morning. Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 17 through to 4 verse 1. And why why 4 verse 1? Well, we're not exactly sure other than it sounds like it should be in chapter 3. Okay, so starting at 3.17, ending at 4.1. It says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done. There is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. This is God's word for us. And before I get into the passage, I want to share a couple of images with you as a little experiment. Can we see the other one first? There's, so I have two pictures, two landscape photos. 
This first one was taken by a Polish photographer in a place called Monument Valley, Arizona. Has anybody been to Monument Valley? One person. I was thinking we should plan a church vacation or something because that looks really nice. I have not been there um, before. And then we'll see the, the second picture. This was made by a Romanian photographer and 3D designer. This is a picture of a place that none of us have ever been to before. Not even the photographer has been to this place before because this place does not exist. Okay? <laughs> this image is an example of what has recently been called, called somewhat ironically, um, AI photography. Artificial intelligence photography. It's crazy that these kinds of images exist, and alongside each other, looking at them, we can't actually tell which one is uh, real and which one is made through this technology. Actual mountains or not. It's hard to say. Magazines are calling 2023 the year that AI went mainstream. The year that AI went mainstream. The reason they're saying that is because if you've used the internet over the past decade or two, I would argue that you have used artificial intelligence. Because if you do a, a Google search, a Google search, a, a Google search, you're not the one who has to look at the millions of results. The technology filters them for you, right? But what's different in the recent year or two with AI is the type and scale of technology that's been made available to anyone on the internet. The most famous website being ChatGPT. Have you heard of this before? Many, many people have. ChatGPT is one where you put in prompts, kind of like a search, but what the prompts do is create something out of what you've asked it to do, like uh, this picture, for example. Or for another example, let's say you needed to preach a 3,000-word sermon on Colossians chapter 3. You could go to this or another website and ask it to do that, and in seconds, it would come up with a pretty good sermon. <laughs> and I've got you wondering. <laughs> no, I didn't. And I think the day that I preach an AI sermon is the day that I resign. Because <laughs> it's just, it's different. But um, this is the debate, though, isn't it, with AI? It's not whether or not AI exists. Of course it does, and people are using it for all kinds of things. The question is, is AI good? And if it is good, what's it good for? Right? If AI is any good at all, then what is it good for? And in this conversation, you'll find all kinds of opinions, uh, which I won't continue to share with you this morning. I think if this was a message about AI and the moral implications of it, one or two people would be very fascinated, but that would not be useful for everyone. No, this message is about Colossians uh, chapter 3, as we read. But very similar to how AI is here, and we are in the process of questioning it, and... Um, wondering, I suppose, whether or not it is beneficial for humanity and what it is beneficial for. We live in a time and place where people are approaching the topic of faith 
in Scripture with a very similar set of questions, with a very similar mindset. This is an era of skepticism, and in a way, rightfully so, because when you hear something about AI and all that it can do, you wonder. You can't help but feel skeptical to varying degrees. There's interesting statistics about how people feel about this technology. But this is an era of skepticism where we demand to know the benefits, the pros and cons, or the downsides of something before we commit to it. So for our non-religious or non-Christian neighbors, when it comes to a topic of faith and Christianity, they wonder about our beliefs and behaviors and want to know if it's good, and if so, what's it good for? Is Christianity good? And if it is, well, then what's it actually good for today? Statistics do suggest that our neighbors and friends and colleagues are actually very open to faith and spirituality today, more so than previously, and this is for lots of reasons, but with the openness comes a dose of skepticism that, again, demands to know if what Christianity teaches and offers is going to be a benefit to them, a benefit to their family, to our communities, and to the world. Is it good? Is it beneficial? Is it, is it useful? Is it beautiful? Is it constructive? And if it is, then people are quite likely to be open to seriously considering the way of Jesus for themselves, for their own lives. But there's a skepticism there that we get to address in our conversations. And I want to begin today's message with this description of our social reality because the passage that we're reading and discussing is actually one that touches on things that cause people to have their doubts and disbeliefs in the goodness of what we profess. This is because if approached incorrectly, this section of Colossians chapter 3 can be and has been read in a way that doesn't sound like it's good. People read that wives should submit to their husbands and be hurt at this very idea and what it seems to imply. Because when you read these words or have them explained to you in terms of power and, and selfishness and control, then why should a, a wife want to submit to her husband? Or slaves and their masters. Haven't people used this verse to justify the ownership of slaves and all the dehumanizing horrors that went along with that? Isn't slavery supposed to be a thing of the past? Why are Christians still talking about it? You know? Is this stuff good, or is this passage just another example of how religion is old-fashioned, out-of-date, and oppresses vulnerable people? To these questions, I would say that skeptics have uh, a fair point when they complain that this and other passages in the Bible have done harm throughout the course of history. It's true that when you take the Bible and misapply it, you will get some 
questionable and sometimes uh, awful results. But, as lawyers who are fond of Latin like to say, abusus non tollet usum. I probably said it wrong because I'm not a lawyer and I don't know Latin. Abusus non tollet usum. Or in English, abuse does not cancel proper use. Misuse does not negate appropriate use. So, AI can be used to cheat on writing a test or writing a sermon, but it can also be used to help people in their businesses get things done more efficiently or create something creative or whatever. Fire can burn your house to the ground, but you need fire in your home to survive through the winter and to cook and things like this. A car can crash and kill people, but if driven correctly, it should get you to church and home again on Sunday morning, right? So misappropriate use does not cancel proper use. For a scripture passage like today's, we don't need to get defensive and make excuses for when they have been misapplied. In fact, Christians should be the first to confidently agree on the times where God's word has been applied wrongly and where damage has been done in the name of Jesus. On the other hand, if we are careful and understand and live according to God's word, then these teachings of Paul will be actually a shining example of just how good it is to live life in the kingdom of Jesus. I believe that Paul's teaching in today's verses are actually an exciting opportunity to experience the power of God at work in the areas of our life that are so often marked otherwise by our imperfections and our struggles and our fighting and our sin and our shortcomings. So rather than ignore or shy away from these verses because of their subject matter or possible confusion or misapplication, let us allow God to speak to us, to use this word to form our lives after what he is leading us through in Colossians chapter 3. Remember that word and that the passage began with. Um, the context that leads up to today's passage and the previous commands from Paul is for Christians to live lives that are filled with the wondrous presence of our Savior. We are learning about how we can demonstrate things like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, peace, forgiveness, thanksgiving, and above all, love. Right? These are where we've just been. This is where we're coming from in chapter 3 up until this point. This is the context within which we read what we read today. Christians are headed forward in a kingdom that's ruled no longer by sin and brokenness, but by the almighty love of Jesus. And what's really cool is that the application for these grand ideals where they play out 
for Paul is not in the heroic acts that look super cool and miraculous and spiritual, although that is valid too, but in this passage, he's describing the daily grind, isn't he? Daily life. To this, uh, Edward Schweizer says, the real world is, according to our letter, what we just read, first of all, our husband or wife, our children or parents, our employees or chiefs. Only if and when we take this world seriously may we perhaps be called to serve our Lord on a greater scale. So for Paul, the proof of the goodness of the good news, the tangible evidence, is not so much to be observed in the miraculous, but the mundane. Or maybe the miracle is that our relationships and work can be healed and can be marked by the supernatural love of our Heavenly Father. So because of our completeness in Christ, we are able to dedicate all that we do to Jesus with thankful hearts. This is what we read in verse 17. And having said that, I will quickly discuss and go through each of the commands and what uh, Paul is teaching to the different groups in the church. First, Paul gives instructions for wives to submit to their husbands. This is a voluntary act on the part of the wife within the context of a Christian marriage where the husband is displaying the love of Christ towards his wife. You see, when we read that a wife should submit, our contemporary understanding of submission is that of uh, weakness, or subjugation, or, or lack of status, or being lorded over. But that's not how this looks. You see, in the kingdom of heaven, we've all been saved by the Son of God who was submissive by choice to his heavenly Father. So in the kingdom, submission is not to be less than, but to be like Jesus, actually. And similarly, in the next sentence, Paul instructs husbands, and his instruction to them is to love their wives, not to be bitter towards them. You see, in the setting that Paul is writing to in the Roman world, um, love is definitely not a given in marriage, right? Today we think, well, you fall in love and you get married and that's how it works. That's not really how it worked in the ancient world. In fact, I would say our understanding of marriage and love is largely, um, the credit goes to teachings, the Christian teachings of people like Paul, where he says that husbands should love, love their wives. Anyways, for the husband, Christ-likeness is also the goal. For the wife to be like Jesus is the goal. For the husband to be like Jesus is the goal, which will always be loving. It's not going to be uh, bitter and resentful and hurtful and all these other things. No, if men want to be a good husband who their wives can submit to, then men are to be like Jesus. I love that today happens to be a family Sunday. It is kind of perfect because we're talking about husbands and wives 
And then verse 20 speaks to the kids. Paul includes children in his letter, which is another countercultural move in the ancient world. Kids, gate kids, where are you at? I see you. I see you. We've got lots here this morning. It's awesome. Did you know that the Bible passage today talks to you? It talks to you. Paul, Paul is teaching the kids in this passage as well. He says that kids should obey their parents in everything because this pleases the Lord. Now, I haven't been a kid in a very, very long time. But if I remember back, thinking way, way, way back to when I was your age, one thing I remember about trying to obey my parents is that it's not always easy to do. Do you always obey your parents? Is it easy to do? Maybe sometimes. It might be easy to obey your mom and dad when they say, hey, can you go get the Halloween candy? Because we're going to have some candy right now. It's like, I got it. <laughs> but then there's other times where obeying mom and dad is not easy at all. And I think that's why Paul is teaching us about it. You see, he adds an awesome thing to the command. He doesn't just say, kids, listen to your parents. He says, kids, obey your parents because this is pleasing to the Lord. It makes God happy. Sometimes we think, well, I don't want to, it doesn't matter if I listen to my mom and dad and it's just about what they want and what I want and blah, blah, blah. But no, Paul says it actually has to do with God. It's good for you to listen to your parents because they have your best interest in mind and they love you. It's good for your parents when you listen to them because that's what they are trying to help you do. But ultimately, obeying your parents is good because it makes God feel happy about what's going on in your family as well. It's like a triple blessing. And it is not always easy to do this, but it's very important for us to think about, to pray about, and to do our best at, especially when we are tempted to ignore our parents or disobey. And just in case the kids are thinking, this isn't very fair. <laughs> Thank goodness, the very next verse, guess who Paul talks to? The dads. <laughs> Paul speaks to the fathers because he knows. He knows how it is. And he says, fathers, don't be too harsh on your kids. Don't be harsh with your kids. And this sounds nice to us, but again, in the ancient world, the popular teaching was that Parents should be harsh on their kids. In fact, the only way to teach your kids was to be super intense and harsh. And again, we thank God for his word, which shows us a better way. Parents don't have to be harsh. They don't have to be um, negative. This is not how Christians are to treat their kids. You see, I'm grateful because God knows that as a father... I need to have my heart in check. It's easy when you're a parent to just think about all the things that your kids should be doing differently and then have your own heart in the wrong place. But I need my heart in check, especially at times when I am dealing with some kind of issue with my kids. I'm not perfect, as my kids and wife are all well aware of. I know it's a shock to everyone else, but <laughs> now you know, I'm not perfect. Right? As parents, we are far from perfect. So God's wisdom, wisdom speaks into that. God speaks to my own pride and impatience, which would tempt me to sin in my role as a father. 
And he says, no, you love your children and you're gentle with them instead. So we hear and we receive this reminder not to be unreasonable and harsh and fault-finding in our kids, for this, this depresses them. No, the Christian parent instead guides and corrects and disciplines always in love. It's in love. And then carrying on to the next set of instructions, I'm going to say something that doesn't necessarily need to be said, but I want to make it clear. Paul's words in the next portion about slaves and masters is not a condoning of slavery. It's not a condoning of slavery. In fact, it is by God's work, by his word and his work in the world, that this practice of slavery has been fought against, abolished in some places, and continues to be fought against in many places in the world today. Christians should be opposed to slavery as it dehumanizes people made in the image of God. It's wrong. And we know that. So Paul's not condoning it. No, he, rather than condoning it, what he's doing is speaking into a context where a large portion of the people in the community were slaves. So he's not condoning the situation and saying it's great. No, but he is speaking into it. He speaks to it. So it may sound weird to us, but this is the setting that the early church existed in and was growing in. So he says, rather than a slave's life and work being supposedly meaningless because of their lower status in the Roman world, Paul says their work and their behavior is important because it's a part of their worship to the Lord. You see, in the kingdom of Jesus, lives are charged with new purpose, with new dignity. So the Christian slaves that Paul addresses, he says, you're not serving just your human masters, you're serving Jesus himself. He even says that in God, a slave receives a reward of an inheritance. Now, an inheritance was a part of Roman citizenship. It was assumed if you were not a slave, if you were a slave, it was legally impossible under most circumstances, for a slave to have an inheritance. And that's the word that Paul chooses. He says, with God, you get that. You get a reward from God, an inheritance. So he includes slaves in his instructions to encourage them, to tell them to work well and to honor God in all that they do and to recognize the glory of what they're contributing, not to their earthly masters, but to God's kingdom. And finally, uh, in chapter 4, verse 1, again, he flips it around, and he addresses the masters. He curbs their pride as well, saying that, masters, you too have a master. God himself is the master of all. So the master's treatment of people should not be corrupt. It should not be abusive and power-hungry but their view of people should be affected as well because of this gospel of grace in their lives. Now, it's, it's tempting for us to hear about slaves and masters and jump to the conclusion that um, workers and managers, it's, it's one and the same. And this isn't the case because of how radically different our setting is than theirs. So you can't just say, well, you know, what, what they're going through is kind of like exactly the same as ours. It's not the same. However, 
There is an application there for anyone who works for others to check our hearts, to see our attitudes and behaviors, how the reality of Christ in us changes the way that we work. And there's still an application for those who manage or lead or do have authority in the workplace to not abuse that power, to not be arrogant in your position of authority. So all kinds of work at any level should be an opportunity to praise God and to show his love in anything you do. Do it unto the Lord. So what Paul's doing in our passage today is hitting these uh, broad human categories in the audience that he's writing to in order to try to show them how their story is included in God's story. And this speaks to all of us, to our relationships, and to our work. These things are no longer marked by brokenness and selfishness. They're not perfect, but they're certainly not meaningless or empty. They're a part of God's story and plan. This is how we as Christians understand it, that all of reality, including and especially our day-to-day lives, are now illuminated with the light of Jesus that finds us where we are, not someplace else, but here and now. Uh, Dallas Willard says it like this. He says, Jesus' news about the kingdom can be an effective guide for our lives only if we share his view of the world in which we live. To his eyes, this is a God-bathed and God-permeated world. It is a world filled with a glorious reality, where every component is within the range of God's direct knowledge and control, though he obviously permits some of it, for good reasons, to be for a while otherwise than he wishes. So we are compelled to allow the light of God's love to move into our hearts and lives to show not only us, but our neighbors, friends, families, coworkers, to show his goodness. Our lives can and should be a real-time enactment of the truth of the gospel that works through us. The normal life that we live is the stage on which grace and love are displayed and all the other things that I referred to in chapter 3 that lead up to this. It's in the day-to-day. In Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, we, we read this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, You are the salt of the earth, But if the salt loses its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. See, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand where it gives light away for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I think this sums up how the goodness of the gospel in our lives is meant to spread out into the world. 
Our lives have been illuminated by the very presence of Jesus. Our relationships and work have been changed to reflect the love that's been poured on us in his grace. So when our neighbors wonder if Christianity is good for the world, if it's good for themselves, they can look at us and see how God has taken us, taken our brokenness, and redeemed it for good. When people see how we treat one another, it should cause them to see a bit of Jesus and turn to him as well. When they see the way that we work in any position, that it has a purpose and a difference, and wonder about that. You see, Christians should be the best employees in the world. So where do you find yourself when you leave this place? What relationships has God given you? Where do you struggle and fight? Where do you love and forgive? What work are you tasked with, paid or unpaid? What authority and influence do you have? What opportunities does your daily life present to reflect the goodness of the gospel? It's no accident that whatever's coming to mind for you when I ask these questions is where you're at. For this is where you are placed by God to, to grow, to experience him, and to love others. It's also no accident that Paul teaches in these areas because these are often the hard places that, that we need to grow and improve in. So this is the challenge, but it's also the hope that our lives are far from pointless, they're far from hopeless or doomed, but quite the opposite. Our lives are in the hands of a very powerful God who is present to include us in his kingdom through what Jesus has done.